Hello, Connor. Hey, hello. So, it's going to be another slightly shortened show this evening. I seem to be in the state where I'm catatonically exhausted on a Saturday. I started this morning recording Model Rail Radio, and uh, it was a surprisingly emotional episode of Model Rail Radio, which is quite unusual. But you have a bunch of topics, I got a few topics, there's a bunch of additional stuff we can talk about. In terms of your week, are you recovered? How has your week been? Ah, so I am recovered from sickness, uh, but I did... The the world is much full of ice this week, uh. and uh, so I did uh, mess up my back, not through any specific incident, but just uh, uh, a lot of slow twitch muscles failing slowly over time because the amount of micro-adjustments needed to stay level yes. uh, just walking around was quite high. Alas, alas. Yeah, this week has been interesting for me. I've hired a a woman in London to do publicity for my After Hours creative work. And obviously, Attic Aficionados is part of this. I also spoke to Art Webb today. He's planning a garden and he needed some assistance with that. And he said that maybe in April time frame, Brandon would be back in contact for periodic recordings, perhaps. So... That's the information from ArtWeb. But to have someone dedicated to doing publicity for my stuff is something that I haven't had for many, many years. When I lived in the UK, briefly, I had a publicist, and I think we just drafted a single press release together. So I'm yet to see what direction this thing will take. But the aim is to get more listeners to all my recordings, but this recording is one of them. And, yeah, just see... What happens? I was particularly impressed with the PR person's work with a book that I was a part of, and it's a book that's going to probably be coming out in a kind of April time frame. So I was just, I don't know, just sitting thinking about a variety of things, and I thought, I'm actually in contact with a PR person that could do what I need. So we will see what happens with all these particular things that I do, but it's nice to have someone else thinking dynamically and no doubt associated with your graphics and various other things. There'll be various ideas that come through this thing. That's been my week, aside from the usual workaday turmoil of pushing the bits out to millions and millions of customers. Yeah, it's always exciting to have another uh, set of eyes and another mind to look at same problems. Certainly. I think the nature of someone who's a professional who you... I mean, I'm the kind of person that has an accountant. I like actually paying people to do dedicated work that they're good at. And it's the same thing with the miniature painting. I actually like to find artists and pay them for stuff that they're good at. So it's going to be interesting having just an additional set of cycles from someone who is a professional. And she went to law school, has a bunch of other acknowledgeable things. So yeah, it'll be interesting. The main thing is just people deciphering the stuff that I do. I think it's relatively difficult to coherently understand the nature of a number of my projects, and Attic Aficionados just fits into that thing. I mean, it's actually quite curious just writing down the projects that I have going on at any given time, so it's going to be fun. Topic that you put down, which I thought about, I'm going to do your topic slightly out of order, I have a kind of natural order that I'd like to tackle them in, relates to Dragon. And as I look around my podcasting room, I have a small collection of dragons in one corner in plastic sprues. I have two boxed dragons that come from the early 80s. Actually, that's not true. One is copyright 1986 and the other is copyright 1988. 
One of the dragons I have because I like the damsel <laughs> that is attached to the dragon. And I think it's a throwback to the chainmail bikini discussion that we had probably in season two, episode one. But for you specifically, in terms of your miniature collection, do you have many dragons? How important are dragons to you? What, what does dragon as a word bring up in your mind? I have a bronze dragon. Uh, I think I have a juvenile black dragon. Mm. Uh, and I have, oh, I think I have some, some waverns <laughs> or some sort of something whose parentage was a dragon and something else. Mm. Uh, because since dragons can shapeshift, having a, a half dragon, uh, child where the child is like a exemplar, uh, version of, uh, the non-dragon parent uh, is, I guess, pretty common in the genre. The oldest miniature I own, and I remember I was 10 at the time when I purchased it, and I still have it, is a dragon. And it was a early edition Tolkien miniature dragon. It's a, not really... It's a pretty rough and ready miniature, actually, of the dragon. It's relatively hefty. It holds in the hand well... But at some stage, I think a parent or a, a brother knocked it off and broke off the tail. The tail I have is the broken separate part. Easy, probably, to pin with a piece of metal and glue in place. I'm debating whether I paint strip it, which is something that I'm doing a lot of currently, uh, particularly with old World War I figures that I'm kind of ripping off my attempts to paint and then sending down to folks at San Diego or whether I just keep it in its current form with the rough enamel paint job that I put on probably age 12, I think, uh, on it. But yeah, I went through a period where dragons were really important to me, and I never really had many dragon miniatures. That's the only miniature I had for a long period of time until I made these additional purchases. One thing I did when I was in Monterey was there was some nautical-themed shop, and I was in the early throes of the D&D game at the time, and I bought three separate dragons that are actually plaster, but painted plaster dragons that are beautiful on perfect scale, uh, two juveniles and an adult dragon. And the adult dragon is 10 inches tall and is absolutely splendid and was used as a critical creature in the campaign. I think it's interesting, actually, that if you get non-branded, like if they're not sold to you in a role-playing game store or, you know, these kind of places... You can actually get dragons rather cheaply if you keep your eyes out. But in general, if you buy a dragon, it tends to be a relatively expensive purchase. Were your dragons relatively expensive, or do they fit into some cheap plastic line that I've obviously not heard of? I guess my formative years were the late 90s and early 2000s, and so when I had access to a vehicle, the place to hang out was... Sometimes the mall, but more often it was, I guess, driving to strip malls, to specific stores and strip malls, mm. um, and every once in a while going to uh, a Bay Area mall, so either the Stanford Shopping Center, mm -hmm. uh, though that was kind of a, a walk around and look at things yeah. kind of mall, and not really a go in and purchase things kind of mall, uh, because it's... I, it's very high end. I seem to remember a store called Natural Wonders mm. uh, that sold. I think that it was Native American themed in a way that is really no longer acceptable. Uh, <laughs> but in the late nineties, was 
a, a place often frequented by sort of white women in their 40s and teenagers of all kinds. Mm. Uh, and there were a lot of wolf pendants and uh, small glass dragons mm. and dream catchers mm-hmm. uh, and, oh, and gems and rocks of all kinds. Mm. Interesting. And your dragon purchases came from this place? Yeah, so I think there was... There was at least there was at least one dragon that came from there. There was one dragon that I had that uh, I, I guess all of these were not necessarily to any kind of scale. I think, like you said, that they they were rare enough that they weren't necessarily to any scale. They were just what they were. Uh, so one of them I think I picked up maybe in Chinatown in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a Chinese style dragon mm-hmm. in red plastic. I think uh, it was very hefty though. It, had quite a lot of weight to it. Uh, and that, I think, was meant to be a paperweight, but it, it made it way, its way into the D&D campaign, mm-hmm. uh, like it should. Uh, and then I think, uh, maybe when I was seven or eight, I had two uh, stuffed animal dragons, both of which were puppets. Between the wings, you could kind of put your hand into the back of the dragon, and then uh, with the adult dragon, you could just control its mouth. Oh, no, with the small dragon you could just control its mouth with the adult dragon you could control its mouth and then you could use your thumb and your pinky finger to control its arms Ooh. Um, and then use your i'm sort of holding my hand out trying to remember <laughs> how to control this dragon uh but you could get it to convincingly communicate and if you used your whole whole arm you could get it to you could kind of do a ventriloquist dummy thing. Mm. You could get it to sit on a surface separate from you and then have it speak and move its arms around. Interesting. Interesting. Yes, one of the things I've thought about recently, particularly with the what I'd call heritage dragons of the mid-80s that I have, is getting them professionally painted. They're a little bit rough and ready, but they're the kind of thing with pinning. And the dragon market, particular through Warhammer and other... Yeah, related fantasy games is pretty hot for the really old dragons. Neither of these are Warhammer dragons. They're not, you know, bone zombie wyverns or anything like that. They're, you know, just pretty rough and ready, bulk sold, box standard dragons that you could buy in most uh, game stores. But yeah, they are things of beauty and they are things that really need to be out and out displayed. I think of Forge World, which is Games Workshop's extremely expensive um, resin cast, I guess, subsidiary. They have some amazingly elaborate, you know, 15 inches off the table style dragons, which are just extraordinary, but just doesn't fit in with my decor, so to speak. One of the interesting points that you made, which I always think about, is the notion of battle beasts in the Warhammer universe, both fantasy and also 40k. And the thing that interests me through this is I have a lot of, like, eclectic, strange, for want of a better term, battle beasts uh, from both 40k and from fantasy. I've gone through recently, I have a couple of ogres, which are some of my favourite old miniatures that I'm currently paint-stripping to get down to the raw metal. In terms of your collection, what particular battle beasts do you have? I have... I can't remember what it's called, but it's a Triceratops, mm. sort of. And it came with a Lizard Man army mm. 
that I bought secondhand at a local place called Legions Ooh. about two years ago. Yes. Uh, and the Lizardman army was completely painted, and all of the bases had magnets installed in them, and someone clearly put a hundred hours into these. <laughs> yes. Um, but they didn't finish the the battle beast, the whatever triceratops, mm-hmm. uh, I guess, leading the the charge. Or maybe it wasn't leading the charge. It has a platform on the top, and the platform has either a throne or a portal. It might be like an artillery beast or maybe uh, something carrying the the ruler or uh, like the elite squadron of whatever lizard creatures mm-hmm. uh, it's coming with. So I have that one. And then I just seem to remember a lot of them throughout the years just playing in friends' house and seeing their Warhammer collection. They seem to come up a lot in television shows and cartoons. Like, at some point, a villain ends up having a sidekick that's a creature, and at some point, that creature gets very large and becomes uh, its own sort of weapons platform. Hmm. Yes. Yep. A lot of my creatures that I have through this are just eclectic. I have various kind of chaotic creatures, various demons, actually, which almost don't really count. They're their own kind of thing. Um, I had an interesting experience today, which I will utilize the telling of. I was online last night and on Facebook, as it happens, I might have been chatting with you or preparing for tonight's recording. And I realized that Facebook actually has community ads. There was a $1 babysitter which I just thought to myself, how bad can a $1 babysitter be in our particular area? And she had a video, and I clicked on it to see how bad the video was. Didn't get that far. The video never loaded, and I waited there for about 10 minutes while I was doing other things. I think I was probably watching the very, very curious, nominally Churchill-related drama, The Darkest Hour, at the same time. But eventually I realized, hold on, I can type anything I want into this stuff. And I was interested what locally was for sale in the Warhammer universe, because I'm always interested in a bargain. And I found a fellow who was very similar to your Lizardman army selling his uh, Warhammer 40,000 Dark Angel army, which were all Terminators, which are the large lumbering mechanical suits, not quite dreadnoughts, but almost on the way there. And obviously we've talked about Space Hulk historically, the Terminators are the first you know, part of the humans that get onto the Space Hulk. But in that process, I actually met the guy in a Dunkin' Donuts today to buy his army from him. I communicated with a fellow who paints miniatures very close to me, but would not meet me in any way, shape or form. He was trying to sell something, but after about 20 minutes worth of negotiation, it appeared perfectly clear that we weren't actually going to meet and I wasn't going to pass on any miniatures to him. And the whole thing was somewhat elaborate. But the fellow that sold me his Dark Angels Terminators had them in a cardboard box with, you know, very limited foam around them and delivered the cardboard box with these things. And then I have to go and find cases and this kind of stuff. There are still deals out there, but you need to look in eclectic places. In terms of the Lizardman army, have you ever played Warhammer with them? Have you ever, you know, assembled a force against some other force? I think all of my Warhammer playing happened in high school, and the first time was Fantasy Warhammer, mm-hmm. and it was, I think, the classic 
humans versus orcs mm-hmm. castle defense box where the there are a lot more orcs uh, but the humans are very well fortified mm-hmm. which i think is is prototypical of of those two armies generally and then there was some amount of 40k that got played at two or three different friends house and i think at some point when i was 18 either right at the end of high school or in that last summer before college there were a couple of conventions that i went to that were just one or two day local conventions and those had a bunch of different four hour long scenarios in a bunch of different i was the eldar for one of them i played around of battlefleet gothic which is <laughs> related uh but i never quite figured out uh are you meant to play battlefleet gothic and then resolve land battles are you supposed to use all of those things together or do the people who play battlefleet gothic tend to stay very far away from the people who play like the regular 40k so it's perfectly feasible to use battlefleet gothic which for folks listening in is a spaceship level conflict with planetary encounters as well there's also historically there was a game called mighty empires which was the fantasy version of Battlefleet Gothic, where you had large land maps and you moved between hexagons taking out various strongholds. And there was certainly a version of Warhammer that enabled you to use that to plan your battles. There was a beautiful book called The General's Compendium, which came out in the early 2000s. Actually, it was out of Games Workshop US, which showed people playing in classic studio-style ultra-budget apartments with, you know, really old stoves that are, you know, with Bakelite knobs on them and things like that. It perfectly captured the poverty that people had to live in in order to support the Warhammer addiction, and it was genuinely a fascinating book. But it was a series of not necessarily alternative rule sets, but just ideas for people to play here Warhammer using these kind of rules. You could play Battlefleet Gothic and resolve the planetary conflicts, or even more interestingly, resolve the docking or ramming conflicts you could get into with the various kinds of, you know, starships that, uh, you know, exist in the Warhammer 40,000 universe. So that's certainly highly applicable. I've never actually played Warhammer Fantasy. I'm somewhat disturbed to say the only game that I've ever played with any degree of frequency, when even that was rare, aside from Space Hulk, which also was rare, was playing 40k. And my friend Alex from Australia, who worked for Games Workshop for a few years, is actually now, he lost his passport, but he's filed for a new passport. So he will be here soon after we return from Australia by the looks of things. I have devoted my podcasting room, aside from recording podcasts, to actually play Warhammer 40,000 when he comes here. It's an interesting devotional thing to dedicate such a large amount of space to a friend who you see every three years. But our 40k games are so notorious that when he came to stay with us last time, my wife insisted that she play a few games too, just to get a sense of what this thing was. And... We play typically, well, I mean, Alex, he he used to work in a game store, right? He used to work in a games workshop store. So he plays almost like a drunk 
drinks alcohol. It's a very strange thing to see, but he kind of lumbers around and he's not, you know, he's not, um, he's not a schlub. So he's, you know, not a schlub like gentleman, but he still has a very distinctive play style, which is more like a flowing conversation than it is a game. The one thing that I hate about 40k as it's played is the people that are obsessive about winning. And the people who get angry through the games and all these kind of negative emotions that come through. There was recently a tournament held in Las Vegas where the top two players played a dirty tricks game through the entire, well, not through the entire, but for a couple of the matches that was captured on video perfectly and has been scrutinized to death in the Warhammer 40,000 community associated with just really bad form. So my experience observing others play is this really bad form element. And thankfully my friend Alex although he will occasionally flub moves and do various other things, doesn't get angry when he plays. But it's interesting, actually, that you've played such a number of these games, and when you played Eldar, you didn't have an Eldar army, right? Was the army provided for you? Yeah, the uh, the army was provided for me. I can't really remember too much of that particular game. I think because I lost pretty quickly. Mm. Um, but when you were talking about civility of play and uncivility uh certainly people being rude is an element of that of many miniature fandoms uh that is just common i think it's sort of typical to the the sort of white dude in his 30s Mm. crowd that it attracts but it made me think of uh, a game i played at a convention i guess this was one of the conventions i went to when i was probably 18 we got to play in a 20-person mech warrior game uh, at the scale of about a set of tables about 40 feet wide mm. uh, and about 10 feet or 40 feet long and about 10 feet wide, maybe about eight feet wide. but it was an entire city and it was uh, the first time that the rebel mechs in the rebels of that empire, uh, had an initial land encounter with mechs of the Empire. So it was pretty early in the war. And so the rebels had better technology, but were samurai-like in who they chose to fight, mm-hmm. and they had very specific rules of engagement. The Empire, on the other hand, had, you know, it was open season. And so all of the people who played this had to embody the spirits of those rules of engagement, and it really caused them to get into character. And what was fascinating about the whole event, and it took five or six hours to play, was that the two people who were kind of refereeing the thing and having it go forward were also the two people who had built the entire model set Mm. uh, and had totally internalized the rules of this situation and almost the narrative structure of the situation because they knew every pilot, every mech, they could really brief people quickly about who they were supposed to be, what they were going into this fight thinking. They got everyone up to speed on the fictional history of that fight within that world right at the beginning. And so everyone really knew that they had a role to play, not just in terms of the mechanical combat of the thing, uh, but also that they had 
a narrative role. You know, they really were Certainly. these characters as, as much as these characters were just like, oh, you're piloting these five mechs, so uh, I guess you're in charge of Colonel Jane and and Sergeant Killer and whoever else. It is interesting. I mean, certainly I... So historically, when Alex came to stay last time, he we bought an army, we bought one of the box sets, which gives you both sides, and then we played both sides each, and then we cut down the forces each, and then we tried various experiments. I think the nature of my playstyle with Alex is very much experimental. You play one side one time, I'll play this, that side next time. You know, let's try various strategies. We talk very openly associate. I mean, there's very little tricksterish kind of behavior. We're very open associated with, like, what happens when we, like, you know, ram those, you know, jet bikes into, you know, the demon at this point and all this kind of stuff. I mean, I think the nature of playing for us is more associated with strategic discourse and ultimately testing probability as well. A lot of these games are made literally won and lost in you know, a certain number of dice rolls at a certain critical time period. So we certainly have a very flexible style. And as we know, we're going to switch sides at some stage, you know, for a second game or a third game, we kind of take note at various strategies that the other person uses. I have a standard game store worth of scenery now, mainly of the cityscape stuff. I have a couple of... um quite impressive bunker systems and various other things. So it's going to be interesting, actually, how we play this time. I've prepared from my experiences last time and have quite a substantial amount of space hooks and a varied amount of space marines. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting to to do this thing. Do you seek out similar conventions? I mean, do do you seek out people now you're in Pittsburgh? I mean, this sounds like a a perfectly Bay Area themed, you know, game that you had played uh, through a convention. But do you still seek out games periodically? Yeah, in Pittsburgh, there's a big board game scene, uh, and there are a couple of board game stores that actually let you. Uh, they they have a certain number of games that are for rent, essentially. Mm. So you you pay ten bucks, you borrow them, you play them you bring them back and you get seven bucks back or whatever. I'm not quite sure that that's the math, but uh, so the board game scene is pretty big and, and there are a couple of board game things that I've gone to in the past. I guess I haven't really sought out a game in a while. Uh, and I, my life got busy in a couple of other areas. And so I just stopped seeking out much entertainment at all, but certainly for eight or nine years, I played a lot of board games with a lot of different crowds. There's a local group called City of Play, uh, which used to be called Obscure Games, that has a game night every Wednesday uh, at a bar, actually, Hambones, mm. uh, over in Lawrenceville. Uh, and there are a couple of other community board game nights that have come and gone over the years. Interesting. Interesting. I don't know. I've talked to my wife periodically about potentially buying board games to play, but I don't think we've ever played... I mean, we have Blood Bowl, you know, which we intended to play at some stage, and that's never materialised. I think with Alex here, we might get out the Blood Bowl and actually play it properly. But yeah, it's interesting that I only really play games with my one friend who I see... Well, I see him slightly more frequently than every three years, but we only have time to cohabit and play these games. 
about once every three years, but it's incredibly important to us. So we communicate maybe every three months we'll have a Skype call or what have you. But planning the games and organizing the games and getting everything in place is its primarily my responsibility, but it's a responsibility that I take very seriously for obvious reasons. You also put down gas giant floating exobiology. I've got a bit to say about this, but why don't you introduce this topic? Ah, there's a author named Ian Banks, and in one of his books... Uh, there is a character who is an exobiologist, so he is a biologist of things beyond our planet. Uh, and this is in the Culture series, uh, so the Culture is a post-scarcity society uh, that inhabits hundreds of planets and is a major player in the larger galaxy, uh, and most of the millions or billions of people who live inside of it have boring hedonistic lives that aren't worth writing about, but some of them <laughs> like to play adventurer and like to play spy, and the books tend to be about those people, the ones who are uh, discomforted by the fact that they have uh, anything they want. You know, uh, They want to figure out where the edges are. They want to find out what happens when like a total lack of needing an economy butts up against other cultures that exist in the galaxy. Uh, so in any case, there's an exobiologist. And the thing that he's studying, it's a creature the size of a city. It's 50 miles long and 10 miles high and 6 miles wide. He's there to study it and learn its processes, but it's like learning the processes of how a city works. It's, it's a hugely complicated organism. I mean, it's 50 miles long. How does it pump blood? Certainly, certainly. It's interesting, actually, because when I read this, I thought of Gas Cloud Intelligence, which comes through a variety of different science fiction authors. And that is a very different thing. That describes that if we encounter aliens in the future, or if aliens encounter us, they don't need to have the same physical form that we have. Now, obviously, the creature that you describe doesn't have the same physical form that we have. But the notion that gas clouds can exhibit intelligence and it could be possible for us to encounter aliens that exist as gas clouds, this is normally something that you can't even see, maybe something with some colour, potentially something with some smell. But the notion of vastly giant creatures that are unintelligible to us because of their size is an interesting theme in science fiction that you hear about periodically or we read periodically, but also there's something similar in fantasy as well. I mean, traditionally, dragons could exist as these super creatures, many of them, you know, the size of a Boeing jet. I think in the Game of Thrones universe, the dragons are the size of a 747, basically. So it is interesting, this notion of human scale and studying intelligent creatures that are out of human scale and certainly something that is rich for both fantasy and science fiction and i think that the, these creatures when you treat them as, as science fictional uh present really interesting thought experiment problems you know an easy one uh an easy example with dragons is is dragons imply a hexapodal uh, world, right? Dragons imply a, a history of, of dragon-like, flightless, six-legged mammal dogs that turn into long lizard things and then their, two of their arms turn into wings. You know, if, if dragons had evolved, 
how does something evolve with an organ that breathes fire? Like, what's the biological process there? You know, I, I think the examples kind of start to write themselves the more you think about the different kinds of huge creatures that could exist. How does their muscle mass work? What do they actually eat? It's interesting to do this thought experiment associated with what is necessary for dragons to exist, like what various parts need to happen in order for there to be dragons. Yeah, the breath weapon, uh, the ability to fly, uh, I think maybe the diet of rocks? Mm -hmm. um, or, like, do they eat their treasure? And if they eat their treasure, what are they... Are they alchemically processing the gold, or are they using the gold for fusion experiments in their mm. bellies? Uh you know, like, what what is it that they're actually doing to their planet's ecology uh, as they exist? You know, are they uh, reburying heavy metals? I've never actually studied the St. George myth to any depth, but the beautiful notion that some guy, which obviously happened in China and a bunch of other places, some guy came back from a wandering exploration with some very large bones and pointed out, hey, I slew this creature but only a few days earlier. I, I think these kind of mythologies in terms of early archaeology are really fascinating as well, and how dragons fit into dinosaur ecology too. I mean, the, the notion that dinosaur myths are pretty well non-existent, but dragon myths are pretty omnipresent throughout the world. So this way of explaining large fossils, big bones, and a variety of other things in these, you know, miraculous creatures is really fascinating to think about in some way, too. Yeah, there were uh, mammoth uh, skulls that got thought to be cyclopses mm. uh, because between the two tusks, there's a large uh, sort of ocular-looking area which you could misidentify uh, as a single giant eyeball. Uh, on a large humanoid face if the tusks had been removed. Uh, I know that in Germany, uh, the word cobalt, uh, like the metal, and the word kobold, uh, which were sort of the evil version of gnomes, uh, tricksterish underground spirits, uh, are, are related words uh, because the kobolds would actually find iron deposits and poison them with their dark magic uh, and turn that iron brittle. And so when people mined what they thought was iron but was actually cobalt and then tried to smelt it, it would crack super easily and they'd go, ah, damn kobolds, they've ruined this metal, uh, when in fact it's a totally different metal. So one topic I wanted to touch on before we get on the Extremely fascinating area of purchasing luggage online. I have a few points on that one. Better photosynthesis. What are you talking about here specifically? Ah, so if you're going to have these megafauna, uh, the easiest way to account for the massive amounts of energy that you would need to put into them, uh, which would be exponential because of surface area to volume ratio problems, uh, if you improved photosynthesis by 50%, if it was just a better, if Rubisco worked much better than it did, and if it was not such junk at uh, misidentifying CO2 and O2 as the same thing and trying to fit them in to cells, uh, 
you know, uh, if you could fix photosynthesis, uh, just a couple of percentage points, uh, then the whole ecosystem could be larger, uh, and the uptake could happen faster. Uh, and you could support, uh, a really, really big predator. Also, and this isn't fantasy at all, the notion of carnivorous plants provide a really interesting, you know, possibility, particularly with large, plant-like creatures that also derive some of their nutrition from animals you know there's a wide variety of possibilities there too so interesting interesting possibilities Connor. it reminds me a little bit and this was one of the other points that i had written down marvel explains why there can be marvel and dc both do this they explain why there can be so many extra cities that are the same as cities in our world uh but just slightly different um, by just saying that that earth is an extra 10% larger. Uh, and so the reason that, that you can have metropolis and Gotham city and New York city all beyond the, the Hudson uh, and in the Chesapeake Bay uh, is because everything's just 10% bigger. Uh, and so the Bay is stretched out just a little bit on that earth uh, so that there can be three cities uh, where there is just one in our world, and it's New York. There's there's three metropolis or megalopolises that are New York-like. Hmm. Yes, I've always thought of what exists currently, particularly the trip from Boston through to New York City and New York City down to Washington, D.C., yeah, there are gaps in that thing. It was one of the things I'd not been to San Diego up until last year. And when I went down to San Diego, I assumed that it was a similar kind of thing that you were going to be in cities all the way down. I was quite impressed that there were actually large chunks of you know, open drift land, kind of beach-like in some regard, but also grass-like in other regards on the trip down to San Diego, because I'd always assumed like the East Coast that it was just a you know megaropolis that just kind of continued from LA down to San Diego. So interesting, interesting topics, Connor. You raise the notion of buying luggage online via Amazon. Have you had a recent experience associated with this thing? Uh, I had two recent experiences associated with this thing. Uh, the first was I bought a small piece of luggage uh, that's a circular duffel bag um, that is definitely the army issue circular duffel bag from like the 1970s or one of them, which has been manufactured and remanufactured and remanufactured and remanufactured, uh, by different Chinese luggage vendors. The, the thing that you can get on Amazon is amazing for what it is and how much it costs. And when it arrives, you you open the box and you you think wow okay this is the part of 2018 that's actually pretty cool and interesting like this is this is a really really nice bag and it was 20 bucks uh and it's gonna last for 50 years or it'll melt in my closet in five years but that's okay because i'll just get another one in five years because that's four dollars a year it is interesting because luggage is one of the few things that I rarely buy online. I go through periods where I hit up military surplus, online military surplus stores, and I bought last year maybe three different kinds of, you know, satchel carry bags from military surplus stores. But 
truth be told, aside from the road trip when I took a small military surplus camera bag of all things with me, they're not really the kind of thing that you could take in good company. And I'm always very mindful as an international traveller, never, ever, ever draw any unnecessary attention to yourself. And that, for that reason alone, most of the time when I buy luggage, almost exclusively, it's either my wife's hand-me-downs or I literally have luggage that I came to this country in, in 1998. I have the same bag that I arrived with in this country and it's so useful and so durable. I actually lent it to my mother-in-law for about nine months and then she gave it back to me. So I typically buy luggage in some store where I can access it, usually when I'm on vacation, funnily enough. It's one of the few things that I know I typically purchase when I'm on vacation. And most of our luggage now is my wife's hand-me-downs. She'll buy luggage again in the wild and bring it home, particularly hard-case luggage and this kind of stuff. So I don't know. I should get more bags. When I look around my podcasting room, the only kind of luggage I have really holds miniatures. And uh, I'm always in need of, like, cloth bags and a bunch of other things. And I always think, oh, I'll just put a an order in for some, you know, Noble Ape carry bags or this kind of stuff. Because I've got all this Model Rail Radio branded bags, which actually, when I went to Westchester last year, I took a couple of them for Brandon. I've sent him a couple periodically through the recording last year. But, yeah, in general, I'm very conservative about my luggage. It's one of the few things that I rarely buy online. Just because I guess I've been burnt historically. I mean, certainly these military surplus bags, one in three really was practically usable, and they were all just a little bit too hyper-military surplus in appearance to be something that I could take through an airport, unfortunately. But you seem to be having some success with these online purchases. Yeah, I I think I bought... So I bought two of those, and then I also bought a hard case, sort of medium-sized piece of luggage that's meant to be checked deliberately i think too big to be an under under the seat piece of luggage uh and those were the first pieces of luggage that i bought in a long time i think i think i've used kind of the same duffel bag for years and years and years and then i don't think that duffel bag survived uh the move into uh where we're living now uh because that move ended up getting weird and involving like a storage unit and people's basement. And there was a little bit of flooding involved and, uh, it was a tumultuous time. And so, uh, many things were, were lost or, or permanently altered by the experience. Uh, and so, uh, the two luggage purchases, uh, recently were, were out of necessity because, uh, those things had passed sometime in the last year or two. Hmm. I also travel remarkably light, and I tend, particularly when I travel internationally, to minimize the luggage. One of the curious things about the road trip last year was because we had our SUV to get across the country and back, we kind of went a bit overboard with regards to luggage. When we finally got to Westchester, it was quite extreme the amount of stuff we got out of the SUV, and certainly the box that I had for a box and a bit that I had for Brandon was really prime real estate. As soon as I passed that thing on to him, immediately that space was taken. And because we had my mother-in-law coming back with us, she had a trundle bag. And, you know, so it was interesting, actually, to have the luxury of space because most of the time when I travel, I send stuff back to myself. In fact, I'm constantly mailing myself back packages to avoid having any additional luggage. In fact, truth be told, even on the 
road trip last year, I sent myself back maybe two or three relatively well-laden bags or well, boxes with bags contained within them, including actually one of my main like duffel bags that I just kind of wrapped up and sent on. So another thing that I do when I travel is I throw away clothes. I typically, you know, go through clothes and if I've got old t-shirts or old pants or, you know, socks and underwear that are in their last legs, I'll typically pack them on a trip with the view that, as you say, I let them pass on the trip. And uh, it's one of the ways that I conserve, you know, travel stuff as well. But I'm thinking we're going to Australia pretty soon and we're going to have access to washing machines in two locations, which means that we don't really have to take that much stuff back. I'm going to be taking a quilt for my father that my wife made, so I will have a large gaping space in my luggage once that has been passed on to him. And yeah, it's one of these interesting things. I mean, most of your travel... I mean, you do do international travel as well, right, Connor? So you do have a mix of kind of domestic and international travel in this thing. Yeah, and I do a lot of travel uh, in my truck as well. Uh, Pittsburgh is about 500 miles from two-thirds of the American population, uh, which was actually advertised internally to the government uh, routinely during the Cold War uh, because Pittsburgh was the, the backup site. Because it's 500 miles from everywhere, it's a great place to try to re-centralize uh, once uh, two or three coastal cities have been taken out by the Russians. But that's neither here nor there. Uh, anyway, um, but you can travel pretty well by truck and you can do a lot of camping you can go to cleveland uh you can uh there's plenty of places to visit that are uh, an, an interesting drive out for a day and then staying there for a couple days and then coming back but i tend to pack light as well uh i tend to pack really minimally uh as much as i can uh and i think that it's something about if i'm going to be on the road i want to know that i can just like leave situations that are weird, you know, mm. like the ability once I'm, if I'm leaving home base, I want to make sure that I am as mobile and as ready to be mobile as possible. I think that that's, that's something that's very particular to me. It's, it's something, it, it's a comfort that I need to feel internally if I'm going to feel comfortable traveling. Uh, and so it's something that I really have to, manufacture for myself and i think that the way that i manufacture it most typically is i do have a small bag that is a military surplus bag and i know exactly what goes in it and in fact the the kit that goes in it uh i have listed in a, a github document that we can link to i have this travel document ready i print it out every time i travel it's a checklist and i just go right through it and um and doing that and having that document and having that structure really lets me uh, explore wherever it is I am going to because I know that this is just, you know, I can survive on this. I can just take this bag and go, uh, and it's going to be fine. I can withstand 48 hours of anything. Yeah, that is an interesting concept. I think we can probably cover that in another show. One topic that I wanted to cover before we sign off I spoke to Artweb today. It was primarily to talk about him creating a garden in his environment. This year, I'm going to run a two-cycle garden through the summer because I'm going to be on the East Coast in 
late August and also mid-September, I'm trying to finish up my plants in an initial cycle, which I did do last year, in particular getting the tomatoes ripe and ready early, uh, and also just closing up a bunch of plants and then planting a secondary garden for what turned out to be, actually, I was getting tomatoes into November, the way I planted them last year. So I actually had two cycles of tomato, you know, tomato plants, and that worked very well. So this year I'm going to do the same. I'm going to downscale somewhat from my gardens of previous years just because the general maintenance of them. Last year I was in a good place. I had the right number of chilies. I had a good diversity of chilies. I had three different kinds of chilies growing. I had a couple of different kinds of tomatoes, of which I really only preferred maybe two varietals out of maybe the three that I was growing. There was one that was kind of strange and not particularly well fungus resistant, which was important through, you know, my watering methods and what have you. So this year I'm debating whether I plant bell peppers. I'm going to certainly plant at least three chili varieties, uh, but I think same kinds of tomatoes, maybe two out of the three that I planted last year, and just do two cycles. I do most of my gardening in 10-gallon and 5-gallon pots. The tomatoes now are always in 10-gallon pots, and the 5-gallon pots work very well for the pepper plants and chilies and what have you. Do you plant a garden every year? Is that something that you do, a vegetable garden? Uh, the garden has not yet been established. So uh, we bought the house two years ago, and then uh, I was ill, and then it was kind of a recovery year. But uh, this is the year that the garden is going to start to go in. Uh, so the first two tasks are there is an area that will eventually be uh, the compost system, and the compost system will be a, a three-bay compost so that you can have the compost that's ready, the compost that's growing, uh, and an empty space to flip the other one of those two into uh, whenever you need to turn one of them. And uh, that is going to go up at the top end of the property, uh, but right now there's a big pile of rubble where previous owner just dumped a bunch of construction waste so the first task is to to level that uh to actually sift through all of the rubble uh because it's full of really good dirt it's just also full of bricks and glass uh so uh, there's a little sifting thing i've got set up so leveling that building out the compost uh and then there's going to be a pretty large raised bed that we're going to put in uh and that'll be kind of the initial go uh, and then after that, I think some amount of what is currently lawn uh, that is pretty aggressive as lawn. Uh, I'm not quite sure how much of it is white clover, but it's enough that it, it, it definitely keeps itself around. So some amount of that is going to get turned into more garden. Uh, but for now, it'll be this, this raised bed and uh, the working compost system are the first two projects. Interesting. Interesting. Well, yes, I, for the first two years I was here, I think maybe maybe the first year, no, maybe the first two years we had raised beds. But the problem with raised beds is our garden is pretty seasonally modular, and it just didn't work out after the second season. We, too, have very aggressive, you know, combination clover and a bunch of other stuff that comes up even if you put down the black lining and various other things. So rather than fighting the... Existing, you know, very parasitic grasses that exist here, 
I moved to pots, which is the technique that my Vietnamese neighbors use uh, to, you know, grow quite splendid plants with. And I maintain that here with probably in the vicinity of maybe 30 pots of different sizes. Um, like I say, 10 gallons for the tomatoes and 5 gallons for the peppers of chilies and this kind of stuff. And also I have a system of like one gallon pots and three gallon pots to shore things up and get them to the right kind of seedling height before I plant them into the much bigger pots. So, you know, I'm looking forward to keeping a garden this year. I have a vast quantity of seeds. I order heirloom seeds and they always send more seeds than you actually need. So I was looking at my seeds literally before I came on this recording and thinking to myself, I've gotten the various other things as well, various like ornamental tobaccos. In Australia, my uncle grows curious tobacco plants as a kind of pesticide, insecticide method. And I've always wanted to do that. I've just never been able actually in this environment to grow these strange ornamental tobacco plants as well. So I might throw a few of them in and try this year. One of the things that I also do is I typically plant seedlings. I have a greenhouse that I utilize and I typically plant seeds in the greenhouse in a usually a kind of March time frame. We're going to be in Australia, but as soon as we get back, I'm going to be planting, you know, the early seeds for the first, you know, season of the garden, so to speak, or the first half of the garden this year. So, yeah, I'm currently looking through my seed collection and thinking, hmm, what of this do I want to actually grow this year? So, always interesting. It sounds like the rubble sifting is going to give you quite a bit of stuff to do before you actually get planting. So interesting times ahead, no doubt, Connor. I've already put maybe 10 or 15 hours into the rubble sifting, and it it it's an activity that leaves you very sweaty and feeling like you need to drink a whole lot of lemonade. <laughs> uh, and it, it, it definitely is an activity that, that makes you feel very much like you're in a Norman Rockwell painting. Mm. Um, you know, like you are, you're lifting the dirt, you're sifting through, you're picking bricks up, you're tossing them to one side. Yeah, it, it is very much a get into your body because you are lifting heavy stuff kind of activity. It's good fun. Very good. Very good. Well, speaking of that, Connor, I, uh, I'm i feeling the need to have an early night this evening. It's always a pleasure chatting. Next week, we are going to be recording on Sunday night because I am going to go and see a live podcast recording of two gentlemen who I have historically recorded podcasts with in the past, Douglas Rushkov and Eric Davis. I found my Eric Davis audio. I wasn't able to find my Douglas Rushkov audio, but I've known Douglas for many years now, a disturbing number of years, since the mid-90s. So it's going to be an interesting Saturday, and I look forward to recording with you on Sunday night next week. I'm sure we'll have a lot of interesting topics. I'll talk to you then. Take care. Sounds good. Take care.